turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. I'm going to give you a little bit of background as we turn there. Maybe a little more than a little bit, but it's not going to be a lot. Somewhere between a lot and a little bit. Before the Christmas holidays, really, yeah, before, before the month of December, we were finishing up a little section in Hebrews chapter 3, chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 specifically, where we found in this passage the Hebrews preacher is appealing to the Hebrews church to remember that they are the house of God. There were some reminders in there that had to do with consider Jesus, consider who he is, consider what he's done. But sort of the theme there that we drew out was realizing, or that at least what's charted us on our next course for the next few months, the last month or so in these next couple, is realizing and knowing that we are the house of God. The house of God is not a structure, but instead it's a people. And what application that has for us, we could just explore indefinitely. But we're exploring it specifically through the lens of the dedication of the temple by Solomon in 2 Chronicles. There's another version of that dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8. But we're studying specifically the 2 Chronicles version of that. We've been there these last four weeks, and this, this morning marks the fifth week where we are looking at this passage through the lens of Hebrews 3, realizing that we are the house of God. So as Solomon is praying some specific things regarding the house of God as he's dedicating it, we can realize that those things have transfer. And the things that he's asking, they can help us understand what we should be about as the current house of God. And man, it's been some surprise, surprise blessings in this account. I'll give you sort of a big picture context. In chapter 1 of Second Chronicles, Solomon asks for wisdom, and he gets it. He's given wisdom and wealth. And then in chapter 2, and then on through 5 or so, he's building the temple, and he's furnishing the temple, and he's doing what wise people do. He's building God's house. It goes on through chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. The Ark of the Covenant's moved in in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6 is his prayer of dedication. And I want to say this before we consider his prayer of dedication today. I love connecting dots and seeing things that come together. And something that's been on my mind these last few weeks, in fact, I've had it in my notes the last few weeks and haven't shared it, is what the temple is not. If you've read your Old Testament, if you've read in Genesis, you know that there was a chapter in there where... Um, the people built, wanted to build a tower in Babel. This Tower of Babel, that's why it's called that. And they, they wanted to do it for the purpose of making a great name for themselves. If you remember the story, you remember that's the point. It wasn't making much of God in this structure. It was making much of themselves, make a great name for themselves. And I'm reading here about the temple and reading about how it's built and then how it's dedicated and what the focus of this temple is going to be realizing this temple is the anti-Babel. It's the anti-Babel in that instead of Solomon making a great name for himself, he's wanting to make a great or a house for a name that's already great, and that's the name of our God. I enjoyed that imagery. Now let's climb into chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, 
five cubits wide and three cubits high, and had set it in the court. And he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who've kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand, you have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you've promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you've spoken to your servant David. A few weeks ago, we began with this next paragraph as being the first request that we considered through the lens of us being the house. Beginning in verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you've promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. This is the first thing that we considered and we looked over a few weeks ago, we looked in chapter seven where God answers this prayer. First of all, he shows that he heard the prayer as fire falls from heaven and consumes the offering on the altar. Only a few feet away, from Solomon. His eyebrows are singed off. And then 13 years later, Solomon gets an answer to his prayer where God says, you know what? Instead of me just giving you my ear, I'm going to give you my eyes and my heart also. And then we considered the beauty of for us in Christ, this side of Christ, that prayer that Solomon prayed for the house is as us being the house that that prayer's been answered in spades. Because not only do we have his ear and his eye and his heart, we have access like any of us and all of us should have to our own father as he calls us his father or he calls us his children and he calls us regarding himself his father. This access, this availability, this attentiveness of a proper father is what we can see now in God as our Father. So this prayer has been answered for the church in spades. And we pray that as a church in, in the year 2013, that we would not take for granted the access that we have. We don't have some big iron door that we have to pull open with two hands that creaks with this big sucking sound as it's opened. We don't have guards outside. We don't have a, um, an appointment book with big linen pages. Whoosh. We can just go talk to our Father anytime we want. And he hears our prayers because we have his heart, we have his eyes, we have his ears, we have his whole person. Man, what a shock, what a scandal. The second request that Solomon made is in verse 22. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head 
and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. What we considered this week, three weeks ago now, in this second request is that we as the house of God, that we would not be hypoallergenic. I didn't use that word a few weeks ago, but I think it's a good word. That we wouldn't be vanilla. Or that we wouldn't be flavorless. That week in, week out, as people sat under the teaching and preaching of God's word, as we journeyed together, that they wouldn't come and go unaffected. And realize in that prayer and in what's being prayed right here is that, God, in this house, I pray that those who need to be convicted are convicted. If we're a church that's afraid that somebody might have their feelings hurt, then man, we're not going to be reflecting what Solomon's praying for here, for that house. But the flip side of that is if somebody needs to be affirmed and encouraged, that even in the very same sermon, one person might be sitting next to another person where one leaves convicted. I have not been living in a way that's honoring to my God and his people. I've not been living in a way that's accountable and responsible, living in a manner, to use Paul's words, living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the person right next to him might be thinking, hopefully thinking humbly, Lord, by your grace and your mercy, it's been a sweet week. I've enjoyed you this week. I've enjoyed your people. I've enjoyed my family. I've enjoyed my context, and I've enjoyed you in my context. Thank you for affirming me this week and encouraging me this week. Lord, we pray that we would not be hypoallergenic where people come and go unchanged, unaffected, but that week in, week out, people would leave convicted or affirmed. They wouldn't leave neither. Lord, please don't let anybody leave neither convicted or encouraged. The third request is in verse 24. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, hear from heaven, forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. This week we considered... That we, Solomon, a wise man, is asking our God to forgive the sinful. And not only to forgive them, but to restore what they've lost in their sin to them. That a wise man can actually ask that of our God, that in some ways that is the embodiment of the gospel right there. To forgive the undeserving, to forgive the sinful. And not only to forgive them, but to restore them to the land that they lost through their stupidity and their own sin. We considered what a good God we have that will forgive and restore the sinful who are repentant. One of the things that I think we considered as a church was realizing that, man, what is on the other side, excuse me, what's the door that you have to go through to get to forgiveness, at least biblical forgiveness, is a door of repentance. He's not praying, Lord, forgive and restore the land to the unrepentant. He's not praying, forgive and restore the land to the one who's still thumbing his nose at you and has not been convicted of their own sin, but he's praying that one who acknowledges his name turns from their sin and prays and pleads to restore their land and forgive them. That's helpful to see. 
It should be helpful for us as parents, should be helpful for us as, us as a church to sort of shore up that word forgiveness, to not use it, overuse it, but to use it in occasions where we are appealing toward what the Bible looks like with repentance, forgiveness, restoration. That's our story. If we're to forgive as we've been forgiven, then we too should be looking for repentance, forgiveness, and then restoration. I had some good conversations from folks this week, even one as early as this morning, saying, man, how does it work? I'm still kind of trying to process that. We've had lots of conversations in small group about that. How does that work? What does that look like? Because I think we've used forgiveness a lot. We use that term for occasions where it may not even involve the other person directly. There may be no incarnate conversation about it, no embrace, no transaction that takes place. I've forgiven that person in my heart. I would offer yet again, I think biblically, Maybe the language there might be better. I've given the gavel over to God, and I'm poised and ready to forgive. And I'm moving in a way that is forgiving, for, is forgiving, but forgiveness has not been consummated yet until repentance happens. Repentance, forgiveness, restoration, they go together. And it's equipping and helpful to see that. And then the fourth request was in verse 26. When heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk. Here, through consequences. And grant rain upon your land which you've given to your people as an inheritance. If there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to their fathers. What we considered last week is that our God uses consequences to guide his people in his way. He uses consequences to teach them the good way in which they should walk. We consider together as a church that maybe it's not wise as a church, maybe it's not wise as parents to keep those you love from all consequences because you may be keeping them from the very thing that God is using them to tutor them in the way, in God's way. So wisdom and discernment and the, the leadership of the Holy Spirit can guide us to realizing when to help someone, when to take those consequences away, in the case of maybe a kid, for example, and when to let them walk in them, letting God use that as a tutor. And then our fifth request is today in verses 32 and 33. Okay, all of that was preparatory for where we are right now this week but it's good preparatory. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. 
in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. I'm so thankful for the balance in this prayer. This prayer has such a nice sampling of things that, he, that Solomon wants to be true of the house of God. And as I'm looking at this prayer as one of your pastors, I'm saying, Lord, thank you for the balance that this will give us as we're charting the course for 2013. It's not all about forgiving the sinful. It's not all about working through consequences. It's not all about lost people or foreigners. Balanced. Balanced. And in this passage today, He is asking some really special things regarding the foreigner that we're going to consider. Let's just sort of unpack this paragraph a little bit. It's not complicated. It's not difficult to unpack. But I want us to call to attention a few things before we ask three questions. What does this say about Solomon? It's the first question. What does it say about God? The second question. And what should it say about us? The third question. Let's unpack it a little bit. Solomon here is praying for the foreigner. He's not praying for an Israelite here. He's dedicating God's house among the people of Israel, right smack dab in the middle of Israel in Jerusalem, but he is praying here specifically for those who are not God's people, the foreigner. And he's praying specifically for the foreigner who is coming to seek after God. The the, the foreigner who is coming to pray to his God and our God. It's important to not take that for granted. He's not talking about a foreigner that's just coming with a need. He's not saying, God, hear from the foreigner who wants to have their electricity bill paid because it's getting shut off tomorrow but has no use for you. You hear that, deacons? We've got lots to talk through after this sermon. It's equipping. He's not saying, Lord, I'm praying for the foreigner. That's, that's enough example. <laughs> Who's coming to have his electricity turned on or his bill paid so he doesn't get it turned off tomorrow? He is praying for those who are coming to seek after God. The words are helpful. A foreigner who comes for the sake of your name. A foreigner who comes to enjoy your might and your power. That foreigner who travels to pray to you, Father, hear his prayer and do all that he's asked. And then there's a purpose clause in there. In order that all may know and fear you. Hear from the foreigner who's coming for the sake of your name. Uh, this is a little side note, and one is actually I was planning on following up with the deacons. Y'all don't know this. Some of you might. The deacons know this. A rare day goes by when someone doesn't stop at Cross Point Fellowship or call Cross Point Fellowship needing money for their electricity bill because it's going to get cut off today or tomorrow. It's rare that someone is not knocking on our door day in, day out, asking for some benevolent help. One of the hardest things about walking with folks is you don't want to give a blanket no to anybody because that's not Christ-like. And you also are not, we're not an ATM. So trying to figure out and discern, well, what are we? This is helpful to see that what he's saying here, he's praying for foreigners that are coming 
because they want to know our God. And that's going to be helpful, I think, for us as a church as we deal with lovingly these folks in some ways who are foreigners coming to our front door. Are they coming here for the purpose of enjoying God and his name and his might and his power? And if so, then we'll walk with them in a way that would reflect what seems to be prayed for right here. Now, the three questions I told you we were going to ask. First, what does this say about Solomon? Solomon, we know, is a man that was given wisdom. He asked for it in chapter 1. He's given wisdom. We know that. And wealth. He starts building God's house. So we know this man has wisdom. And here he is praying wisely and dedicating this house. And what we can see here about Solomon can tell us something about what is wise It shows us that a wise man isn't stingy with his relationship with his creator. A wise man is building God's house, but a wise man is also not stingy in his relationship with his creator. It's not exclusive. It's not just me and my people. There's a view to the outsider, the foreigner, and the sojourner. He has a mind to others as he's praying and dedicating this temple. This shows us that a wise man is conscious of the alien. A wise man is mindful of the foreigner and the outsider who's looking for our God. Hear that qualifier. Who's looking for our God. It is helpful here to realize that Solomon is asking prayer specifically for the foreigner with an appetite for God in his ways. Now, what does this say about God? So he told us that Solomon is wise and Solomon's asking those things so it can tell us that a wise man is mindful of the alien or the foreigner. What does this prayer tell us about God, knowing that a wise man is asking our God for these things? Now, I want to tell you that I turn to chapter 7. If you're in 2 Chronicles right now, turn over to chapter 7 and look with me. Chapter 7, verse 13. This prayer I shared earlier was answered seven, or excuse me, 13 years later. And I was so excited to read this prayer after studying about the request where Solomon asks for some specifics regarding the foreigner. Because I'm thinking, man, God's going to answer that prayer, right? So we're going to be in- investigators here in these next few minutes. All right, it's going to be some work. You need your Bibles, all right? I'm not going to have you turn to every passage, but I'm going to have you turn to a few of them, and I'll turn to the others, so I'll do the majority of the work, but I'm going to make everybody work in these next few minutes. But here's how our investigation begins. We turn to the answered prayer. Chapter 7, verse 13. When I shut up, the, this is God's answer 17, or 13 years later to this prayer. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their r- wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And now my eyes will be open and my, my ears attentive to the prayer that's made in this place. For now I've chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. He goes on to answer some of the other specifics that were prayed 11 years, 13 years. I keep forgetting. I'm 11 years earlier. 13. (laughs) 
I'm working with new equipment this morning. I am so disheveled right now. Disheveled may not be the word. I'm so discombobulated. My eye doctor is here, so he knows exactly what I'm talking about. Progressive lenses. Anybody else ever had to make adjustments to progressive lenses? I feel like I'm in space right now. Okay. All right. Let me get back on the ground. Okay. Because I'm in the middle of a sermon at church. Okay. All right. Where were we? (laughs) What does this say about God that Solomon can ask this of our God? We look here at the answer to Solomon's prayer, and he doesn't answer it here. First of all, it tells me that God's a little bit mysterious. He's going to make me work for an answer because it's not here on a platter. But we find it other places, and this is what we're going to do in these next few minutes. We're going to do some investigation. You turn to Isaiah 56, and as you're turning there, I'm going to turn to some other places. The first place I'm going, you're going to Isaiah 56. The first place I'm going is to really the beginning of the story for a people where God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And what he said to Abram in chapter 12 of Genesis, you go to Isaiah 56, but as you go there, listen to what I'm about to develop for you. There's no answer to this specific request by Solomon in chapter 7 but there are clues what God's heart for the foreigner is elsewhere. Chapter 12 of Genesis. This is about 500 years before Moses, about 1,000 years before Solomon prayed this prayer. It's the beginning of the story for a people. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the first clue. That God, has, God is up to something that's more than just about the Israelites. That God has a view to some foreign families. Through you, Abram, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's about a thousand years before Solomon. The first hint that God's plan is bigger than just Israel from the very beginning. The next little glimpse is in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Don't turn there. You stay where you are in Isaiah chapter 56. Deuteronomy chapter 4, listen to this passage. This is about 500 years before Solomon. This is when they're on the the cusp of going into the promised land. They're on Nebo, or at least Moses is on Nebo. They're encamped around Nebo. They're about to cross the Jordan on dry ground and go into the promised land. Moses is recording the book of Deuteronomy, and here's what he says. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes, the rules that I'm teaching you And do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today. See, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of them. Take possession of it. Listen to what he says next. Keep these commandments and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it 
as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? May have 500 years before Solomon even prayed this prayer, we get another little glimpse that God cares about what the nations think of him. He tells Abram, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And then here, 500 years later, 500 years before Solomon prays this prayer over this temple, it appears that God cares what the nations think. God, because he's communicating through Moses here. Man, you keep these commandments. You do these things. And you do, the neighbors and the nations are going to say, who in the world has a God that awesome? That God is awesome. That's why you obey him. The next one's just a few chapters later in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heaven, the earth with all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and the mighty, the awesome God, who's not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. If I'd stopped about two verses earlier, we could say, yeah, this thing's pretty exclusive. This is about Israel. But in the same, in the same breath where he's communicating his love that's set on a people, he's sharing his love for the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And he tells this people, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land. Now, we get some seriously cool glimpses of what God's up to. The very earliest hint is when he's calling a people through Abram. He says, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. We get a glimpse in Deuteronomy 4 where God, wants, God cares what the nations think of him. And we get a glimpse right here in Deuteronomy chapter 10 where God says, love the sojourner, for you used to be sojourners. And I hope you all make that connection. Later on in this sermon, I hope you make the connection to that passage right there. Love the sojourner for you used to be a sojourner. God wants them to be mindful of what they used to be. Man, I'm trying to figure out why was the nation of Israel, even like in the time of Paul, where Paul's arrested and they're mad at him because they say, you brought a, a Gentile into the temple courts. This atmosphere that's so anti-Gentile, like they have cooties or something. I'm trying to figure out where that came from. And the only thing that I can think is that there are a number of passages that are warning against the word for this is syncretism. They wouldn't intermarry with foreign peoples. That their fidelity to their God wouldn't be diminished through engaging foreign peoples. And that's the only thing I can think is that maybe they just took that and said, okay, foreign peoples have cooties. Not realizing that he's saying 
Still be faithful to me, but show those foreign peoples what I look like. Show them how great I am. And as you're doing that, what will fuel you is to remember that you too were sojourners in someone else's land. Show them my character. Man, I've been trying to think about how this thing unfolded. And it seems early on in the, the, the story of the, the, the whole redemptive story, Bible-wide, that I've been, I shared with Christy this morning, that it seems like it's a rosebud. That early on is just sort of limited to the nation of Israel. But over time and through different events gets opened up to the nations. Through time and different events becomes beautiful to the whole world. And you're gonna see this unfold here in the next few minutes. Isaiah chapter 56 I'm going to tell you right now, I just plain delighted in this chapter. What we did just now is we looked at some of the clues that were before Solomon. And right now we're going to look at a profound clue that comes 300 years after Solomon that's going to show us what God's heart is for the foreigner. Solomon prayed for it. He didn't get an answer for it 13 years later. But man, I'm going to tell you what, there's an answer right here 300 years later. And it's awesome. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now listen to verse three. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. I'll never truly be part of the family. Let not the foreigner ever say that who's been united to me. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Now, some of y'all are going to have to have uncomfortable conversations later with your kids and explain that, but it's worth explaining. I'm going to leave that up to y'all to do that, though. Let not the eunuch, the eunuch in some ways represents the lame and unworthy. See, in Deuteronomy 23, it was clearly communicated that a eunuch should never enter God's presence. But see, that bud is opening up. That bud is opening up, and here it says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me. That's the best phrase that captures it, that hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. The eunuch will not have a row of kids that he can call his own. But what God is gonna give him will be better than a row of kids. He's gonna give him a place in his house. I will give in my house And within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters can give him. I will give them a eunuch, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. You've got to see the irony in that. An everlasting name to a eunuch. The thing I enjoy about the eunuch is this dude represents the helpless. He represents the uninvited, the excluded. But not in my house, he's not. Not in God's house, he's not. Come on in here, eunuch. You're going to be family. 
And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, who minister to him, who love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring into my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Solomon got an answer to most of his prayer 13 years later. The man, I'm going to tell you, when it comes to the foreigners, 300 years later. Man, I have a heart for all the peoples. The foreigners, the eunuchs. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Man, I'm going to tell you the beauty of this chapter. The beauty of this chapter is this bud is opening, and we see here that a foreigner or a eunuch united to God isn't a foreigner anymore. The sermon is about us, Gentile people, fellow Gentiles. A foreigner united to God isn't a foreigner anymore, and a eunuch united to God is in a dry tree. The fruit is hanging from the branches when he's united to God. And man, I'm going to tell you what my heart sings when I think about one of the first proselytes, proselytes, one of the first who came to faith in Christ in the early church. Philip shared with an Ethiopian eunuch, and an Ethiopian eunuch came to faith in Christ. Man, Is that beautiful to anybody else? Does that make your heart sing? Man, it makes mine sing. 700 years or so, this is prophesied. And then, yes, an Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith in Christ. And man, he moves in as a full member. A foreigner, a eunuch united to Christ, isn't a foreigner, isn't a dry tree anymore. He's family. We find this answer after Solomon, and we find the answer to what God thinks about the foreigner. More of that, this side of Christ. Turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Man, this was a special day when we hit this section in in the book of John years ago. We did the work to get to this point where Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. It's a triumphal entry. If you look in John chapter 12, you see that heading uh, on the top of the page 899. If you have an ESV, the pagination is usually about the same, where it says a triumphal entry. He's just entered Jerusalem. He's in his final week before he goes to the cross. And listen to what happens. Verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some foreigners, some Greeks. So these foreigners came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus did not turn to them and shake their hand and say, Hi, Greek dudes, great to meet you. 
Jesus spoke to how profound that moment was when the Greeks were brought to him. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's speaking of his hour in the cross, which is just a day, short few days away. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The fruit that he is speaking about in that context is the fruit of the nations. The fruit of foreigners who are now coming to Christ. If you watch Christ's ministry over the course of the Gospels, you see early on in the Gospels where he's telling his disciples, just go to the lost sheep of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles. He sends out his disciples to preach. A a woman might come to him who's a foreign woman, and he says, no, I've come here to minister to the house of Israel. She has a pretty good response there. You have to read that story. But the bud's still closed. But then over the course of his ministry, it opens up. And right here in John chapter 12, it is in full bloom. And he says, the hour has come. A grain of wheat must fall to the ground and die. And he's speaking of his death on the cross. And they will bear much fruit. And that fruit is these Greek dudes that are standing right here. You, me, and everyone else who is a believer. Especially the Gentile believers. Man, this prayer was answered, Solomon. This prayer was answered in spades. God, in fact, does have a heart for the nations. God, in fact, died for the nations. God the Son, that is. That's in the week before or the week of his death. Now now let's look 40 days and a week later in Matthew chapter 28. Listen to this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is what he said just before he ascended to the Father's right hand. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go get the foreigners. Go get the sojourners. Go get the aliens, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. God has a heart for the nations. Listen to this one from Acts chapter 13. This is a profound moment where Paul's message then began to go to the Gentiles after through some pretty painful events. Chapter 13, Barnabas and Saul are sent off. They go to Cyprus and then they go to Antioch of Pisidia. And in chapter 13, here they are preaching in Antioch of Pisidia and listen to what happens. Starting in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now, what had happened before this? Paul is preaching in Antioch and Pisidia, and he's preaching to the Jews. And the Jews are hearing about Jesus, and they're going, man, we want to hear more. This is very interesting. This is compelling. Come teach us more about this. And this is the context for verse 44. The whole city shows up, not just the Jewish folks in Antioch of Pisidia. But the whole city gathers to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, the Jews, the ones who just earlier were saying, we want to hear more, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jews, 
Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the, the bud is opening to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I'm just going to tell you right now, as I read those words, and I hear and I imagine a bunch of Gentiles in Antioch and Pisidia who are hearing the good news of Jesus, and they're celebrating, hey, this thing isn't just for the Jews anymore. I wonder, do our hearts sing 2,000 years later? Do we sing and dance at the reality that this has now come to us, that the bloom is open? Or do we just say, ah, yeah, what's the big deal? And this is a scandal. God called Abram. God built a people through the fiery furnace of Egypt. God sustained and long-suffered with the people. And you see this very people-centric movement, but then you see this bud start to open where we're included with a relationship with the Creator. It should ravage us. It should scandalize us. We should be marveling. We should be awestruck that this would open up for us. Do your hearts sing at this reality? We would not be sitting here had that bud not opened. When those Greeks came up to Jesus, hey, we want to meet Jesus. That's when things changed for us. Those were our forefathers of the church. When the Ethiopian eunuch said, hey, there's some water. Why don't I get baptized? That's our forefathers. Eunuchs. Man. When the bud opened up, does that blow our minds? It should. And it should affect our heart for the foreigner. If it's ho-hum to us, then we're not going to have follow-through for the foreigner. Do you understand that? If it's like, yeah, whatever, what's the big deal? If your hearts don't sing over it coming to you, foreigner, then you'll have no heart for the foreigner. And you won't reflect God's character. The third thing that we were going to ask, first was, what does it say about Solomon or a wise man? What does it say about God? And then third, what should it say about his people? It's the last place I'm going to have you turn this morning, the Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. This is some seriously good medicine right here. I'm going to do a little more work for you in addition to Hebrews. I'm going to read a passage for you as you're turning there. From Matthew. This was really the treat of my study this week, was seeing this develop. Let me tell you, let me set the stage for you a little bit. If we know what a wise man can pray, being wise, praying for foreigners, if we know what God's heart is, that he has a heart for the foreigner, the sojourner, the alien, even the eunuch, if we know that about God, how should we reflect his character as his people? We have to consider the reality that our God is, here's a word, this is going to be the word for the, for the day. Our God is hospitable. Our God is hospitable. And if he is hospitable, so then we should be hospitable to the foreigner 
to the eunuch, to the alien, to the sojourner. I'm going to tell you right now, I have almost always viewed hospitality as something that takes place within the people of God. In fact, we've even used it as the language of gifting, that there's gifts within the church. You know, you have the gift of prophecy, you have the gift of teaching or preaching, you have the gift of hospitality, and you need to really use that gift of hospitality because the body's going to be built up and edified by that. And I think that's completely, that, that is absolutely true. But that's not the complete truth. This was the treasure for me this week. Stay in Hebrews 12 and listen to this passage. You may jot this down. From Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered the nations. Yes. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, listen to these next couple of verses. I want you to write, if you write in your Bible or write in your notes, write a one beside this next verse. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And now in verse 36, put a two beside this. If you do this work, you're going to be like, man, this is so cool. Verse 36, I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. You may be familiar with how the rest of that conversation goes. When were you naked? When were you clothed? And you did the least of these, you did it to me. You, you may be familiar with that passage. But I want you to see the formula there. Number one, you're caring for the stranger, giving him some drink if he's thirsty, giving him some food if he's hungry, giving him, and then verse two, you're giving the naked clothing, and you're going to visit the imprisoned. Now, look at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 begins in verse 1. It says, let brotherly love continue. And then look at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Number 1. And then verse 3. Remember that those who are in prison as though in prison and with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. This verse 1 through 6 of chapter 13 was an early church catechism. It was something that had been taught the Hebrews by other people who sat at the feet of Jesus. What the Hebrews preacher is sharing with the church right here is exactly what Christ shared with their parents and grandparents. Love the stranger and go visit the people in prison. There's the formula. It's catechism because that's what God's people do. We love the stranger. We care for those in prison. Now, I want to bring out and draw out this loving the stranger specifically. Contrast verse 1 and 2. Let brotherly love continue and do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. This word here for brotherly love, if you're familiar with Greek at all, you don't really have to know much Greek to know that that is Philadelphia. Philadelphia, loving your brother. The word for hospitality is philazenia, love for the stranger. 
What I, all this work that I was doing in these last few minutes is just to show you that hospitality, at least in these contexts, has more to do with strangers, those outside of the people of God, than it does inside. While it certainly has application inside, it has more application outside. Brotherly love, Philadelphia, is in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. And then in verse 2, let Philozenia continue, showing hospitality to strangers. Seeing both of these side by side is so beautiful because you, what you realize here is that love for your brother is the corollary to love for the stranger. And a church that does one and not the other is not reflecting the character of our God. Man, we got Philadelphia going, but we don't got no Philozenia going because we're too busy with Philadelphia. Or we got Philozenia going, but we don't give a rat's behind about each other. You could probably think about churches that lean in one direction or the other. As we sit here in our, we're sitting here in our fifth week of sort of praying into the year what we want to be, this is the sort of people we want to be, a balanced people. It's a formula you see other places too. You can look into other passages like Romans chapter 12, verse 10, and you see the formula yet again. And that's just one of a number of places. Let me share that with you. Romans, and it just takes a second to read it, but it's just so cool to read. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 Love one another with brotherly affection, Philadelphia. Outdo one another. It's actually verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints, Philadelphia, and seek to show hospitality, Philozenia. If you're going to be a healthy church, you're going to be a healthy family, you got to do both. Philadelphia and Philozenia. It's awesome when you see them both together and realize it's not one or the other, but both and. Now I'm going to share with you what's in store if you do these things. If you reflect the character of our God, if you reflect what Solomon prayed for in the house, that if a foreigner comes, that he's heard, that he essentially functionally engages you if we're going to be the people of God, the house of God, that the stranger or the foreigner either comes here or we engage between Sundays, that they meet God through their interaction with us. If we're going to have a heart for the foreigner, then there are some blessings in store. There's some challenges in store too. I thought about one passage in 1 Peter where Peter, man, I'm like, Peter, you have got my number right here. Those of you who know me well know that I would much rather just kind of hang out by myself than hang out with a bunch of people that I don't know. So every time I go about the event or work of getting to know someone that I don't know well, it is seriously fatiguing for me. Peter says, show hospitality or philozenia to one another without grumbling. And I'm like, Peter, you got my number. Because that's how I feel almost every time before before we exercise some hospitality, but not after. Without fail, after we've spent time with people that we don't know, after we've spent time getting to know some people better, 
having some philozenia after every single time I'm so thankful. And Christy and I both are so thankful. It fuels us. It blesses us. But Peter had my number when he wrote that passage because he must realize that there are probably some among us that aren't fueled by the thought and delight in the thought of dusting or sweeping or cleaning the house or preparing a meal or straightening up so that you can have some people over. I thought, too, about a couple that I mentioned to some friends the other day, and they didn't know who this couple was. And this, these friends are in this church. And it made me convicted that I want you, wanted you to meet this couple. The Hebrews preacher told the Hebrews church to imitate the faithful among you. So I want you to imitate this couple I'm about to share with you, share some passages with you about this couple. Their names are Aquila and Priscilla. I'm going to read a few passages with you as we go into our Lord's Supper, and this is sort of going to condition us with our approach to this specific meal. Aquila and Priscilla, chapter 18 of Acts. Just listen. I don't want you to do any work right here. I just want you to listen. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila. That's, that's the dude. A native of Pontus, recently come from, it's a weird dude name. That's why I qualify that recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. That's the wife. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. Okay, just envision Aquila and Priscilla having a house and Paul staying with Aquila and Priscilla as they exercise Philozenia, which eventually becomes Philadelphia. Paul's a stranger to them at this point, Philozenia. But later he becomes, as he becomes family and they get to know him, Philadelphia. They were tent makers by trade. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews. In the same chapter, verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And now in the same chapter, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been entrusted in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when A and P, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him home. They said, Apollos, we love you, bro. You're a stranger to us, but we're going to spend some time ministering to you and teaching you, and we'll eventually be Philadelphia. When Priscilla and Quilla heard him, they took him and explained to them the way of God more accurately. It's a cool picture. We're here, Aquila and Priscilla are taking Apollos home. They're bringing in Paul. We've imagined already the kind of things that Paul does, and maybe he's forgetful, forgetting his coat in Rome or wherever he forgot it, forgetting his books. You know, he's asking people to run errands all the way across the Roman Empire. Paul could have been kind of a nuisance to live with, forgetful maybe. And here he's going to move in with Aquila and Priscilla, and then he's going to move all together, and Aquila and Priscilla are going to go with him. And then Aquila and Priscilla are going to hear Apollos teaching, and they're going to say, ooh, Apollos. We need to come alongside you, bro, and share with you some additional truths. And then they show up again in Romans chapter 16. 
Paul says, greet Prissa, which is the proper name for Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Aquila and Priscilla are putting up Paul, Paul. Aquila and Priscilla are bringing Apollos in, Philozenia, he's a stranger, bringing him in, he's becoming a brother, and they're discipling him. Some people think that Priscilla may have written the book of Hebrews. I think it was Apollos. But think of the irony where Apollos maybe is saying, imitate those among you who are faithful when we're considering today, let's imitate Aquila and Priscilla as they have church in their home. Man, there's a love for Philozenia. That's redundant. There's Philozenia and there's Philadelphia in these two. They show up again in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. And these two even show up in the letter to Timothy, second, the second letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Man, these guys are like a thread running through the New Testament story, the churches, that is. Aquila and Priscilla. Man, foreigners didn't stay foreigners with these two. Do you see that? Foreigners became family with these two. It, it almost looks like they have a revolving front door as they're bringing folks into the life of their family. Paul, Apollos, the church, Timothy. Foreigners didn't stay foreigners with these two because they're reflecting the character of their God. Foreigners became family. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, I want you to consider God's hospitality to his people. That's what this meal is. This meal is for his people. It's not for the nations. This meal isn't for foreigners. This meal is for his people, and it's to fuel your hospitality to foreigners. This meal is for God's people to nourish you and fuel your hospitality to others as you consider God's hospitality to you. There's a quote in one of my commentaries that I'm going to share with you as we go into our Lord's Supper. Fundamental to the building of partnerships with strangers is a community that experiences itself as the guest's of God. Fundamental to the building of partnerships with strangers is a community that experiences itself, itself as the guests of God. If you have no marvel, no awe that you were a stranger and a sojourner and you've been invited in to become family, if that does not fuel you at all, if it doesn't move you at all, then you have nothing to offer the stranger. 
But if it captivates you, if it arrests you, if you oftentimes or sometimes find yourself wondering that God would do this for you, a eunuch, an alien, a sojourner, a stranger, how could you not then do that for others? How could you not? Man, I pray in 2013 that we have revolving doors on the front doors of our homes, that our schedule books or our iPhones, whatever, allow time for others to be part of our lives, both in and out of the church, Philozenia and Philadelphia, as a reflection of the character of our God. There will be a church full of Aquilas and Priscillas. Let's pray and we'll take our supper together. Lord, we marvel that we've been invited to your table. And I realize as I pray that, that possibly lost in, um, in the communication of it, possibly lost in the absence of someone who may not be here, that that could so easily be missed. And that as we are to forgive as we've been forgiven, we are to show hospitality and a love for strangers as we've been loved as former strangers and brought into family. Lord, I pray this meal will fuel us for that, that as we sit and eat and have fellowship with our God because of what Christ has done for us, that we'll be quickened to eat and have fellowship with others in Christ's name. I pray that we'll have a mind for the waitress or the neighbor or the bookkeeper or the workmate or the postman. That we have a mind even for those who come and knock on our front door on a Monday asking for help with their bills. That we have a mind for the potential that you can draw people through a number of ways I pray that we'll have a mind for these folks and that we'll have the wisdom of discerning those who have an appetite for you and pouring ourselves out, showing love to these strangers and that they not stay strangers. I pray that as we go about doing that, go about doing that wisely, go about doing that effectively in 2013, that we'll reflect you in your ways. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here, uh, Christy and I and our family sort of uh, took a little break from, yeah, I need one of those. Took a little break from our hospitality efforts. I think almost since the beginning of our marriage, we've just had a revolving front door. In fact, we kind of considered our house was not our own, that we had these conversations. Our house is not our own. God's given us that, and we are to be good stewards with it. And before we ever even came to Crosspoint, to Greenville, we were oftentimes having people in our home. And if someone were to ask me, well, how did this church grow that y'all planted 10 years ago? I would say that the Lord grew it through our dining room and den and others' dining rooms and dens. That 
you know, corporate worship on Sunday morning, that's a big deal. You know, for some of you, you're like, hey, man, this is my first little test of this people. I want to hear what their message is. I want to hear what their songs are like. I want to hear what their sort of spirit and are they friendly? Do they greet me? Things like that. Those all seriously matter. But I would say the people that have gone the distance and walked with us over time likely went through the front door of someone practicing philozenia. And the philozenia, in some ways, fuels future Philadelphia. It, it, it's the front door into fellowship. It's how strangers become family. And uh, this last year, we took a little break from it. And it was more a function of it just being a challenging year. Those of you who've been with us this last year, you know some of the, some of the stuff that we've gone through as a church. It was a hard year. And I'm just being really honest. You know, some of you, they're like visiting, like, oh, what happened? Well, that's not important. It's just a hard year for, for, uh, for me and Christy and for, you know, for many of us. Lots of, lots of things to look back and go, man, it was kind of challenging. And we kind of hunkered down as a family. And in January, though, something clicked. And it's like, man, mm, we need to be opening our doors. We need to be having people in our den and our dining room. We need to be fellowshipping and spending time with people, even though not my potential will be to grumble about it. Like Peter said, don't grumble about it, because I know you're going to, Ben McGraw. After every single one, you're like, man, that was awesome. I so enjoyed fellowship with brothers and sisters, or I so enjoyed fellowship with a former stranger who's now a friend. Man, Christy and I haven't had some of you in our homes, and we, we got to, you don't know it, but we like aiming, planning, scheming because we want to get to know you because I think that's reflecting the character of our God. I want to encourage you in this next year, let's be that people. Let's be Aquila and Priscilla as a people. The thread that runs through the advancement of the kingdom. That's the effect there. That Aquila and Priscilla got to participate in something. It was more than just the fellowship and fun of being involved in lots of stuff. Is they were part of the advancement of the kingdom in the early church. What a sweet privilege we have to do that. If your life lacks meaning, let's start there. <laughs> let's be faithful in the small things. Can you make a meal? I mean, hamburger helper, something. Make a meal. Sweep, you don't have to dust. I threw that out there. I did yesterday because that's just who I am. That's, that's me, you know. That's what I like to do, you know. You don't have to do that. You don't have to be over the top and feel like it's got to be pen clean in order to do that. But when you do that, you're reflecting what God has done for us in this meal. Can this meal be that practical? It is. It's got to be. Because God has invited us to his table Let's invite the foreigner and the stranger to, to ours. Let's take and eat and enjoy this meal with God.